Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, normally, and, and I, I had the same going question. through the Bokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head. Imagine I'm on your shoulder time. and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and Every single meticulously. about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was really weird one to write because every time I tried to outline... became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talk with Chip Scanlon. Scanlon is an award-winning former journalist who has authored or edited a dozen books. His newest book, is Writers on Writing, Inside the Lives of 55 Distinguished Writers and Editors. Each writer or editor included in the book was asked the same four questions. What's the most important lesson you've learned in your writing life or editing life? Uh, What's been the biggest surprise of your writing or editing life? If you had to choose a metaphor to describe yourself as a writer or editor, what would it be? And so far, I've got a Ferris wheel, a diver, a bee, a miner, a detectorist. And then the last one is, what is the best piece of writing advice anyone ever gave you? The answers to those questions are enlightening to read. Included in the book are Susan Orlean, Dan Barry, Jan Winburn, David Finkel, Roy Peter Clark, and so many more. The book also includes 10 writers who've been on this podcast, and I'm honored to be included in that number. It's not just journalists featured in the book, though. Scanlon included poets and fiction writers. He's covered the entire realm of writing. The end result? Narrative journalists aren't so different from poets after all. Ultimately, we're all just writers. I did not find a difference between them. You know, writers are writers, you know, like I tell people I coach, a writer is one who writes, period. You don't have to be published, you know, you just have to write. That makes you a writer. Scanlon has written two journalism textbooks. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, and many other places. Two of his essays have been listed as notables in Best American Essays. He publishes the newsletter and blog Chip's Writing Lessons and is a regular contributor to Neiman Storyboard. He formerly directed the writing program and the National Writers' Workshops at the Pointer Institute. And I have to say, Scanlon is a 1971 graduate of Fairfield University. This is the first time I've had an alum from the university where I teach on the show. As usual, I've linked to everything we talk about on the website, 
You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast.com. Chip, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. I mean, it's such an immense pleasure to be with you. I really appreciate the invitation. The podcast is fantastic. Um, thank you so much. And, and I'm really excited to talk with you about your new book, Writers on Writing, Inside the Lives of 55 Distinguished Writers and Editors. Can you tell me about the book? Yeah, sure. Um, two years ago, I decided to start a blog and a newsletter. And I decided to do interviews as part of a, as a recurring feature. But obviously, I, I've been interviewing writers since 1994, first at the Pointer Institute and, and beyond. And uh, I, love, I love talking to writers about their process. So I, I knew I couldn't have a long, a long interview uh, session. So I came up with four questions. What's the most important lesson you've learned in your writing life or editing life? Uh, what's been the biggest surprise of your writing or editing life? If you had to choose a metaphor to describe yourself as a writer or editor, what would it be? And so far, I've got a Ferris wheel, a diver, a bee, a miner, a detectorist. They're very funny. They're entertaining. Although I have to tell you, journalists are not comfortable with metaphors. <laughs> they constantly say, I'll give you a simile, but I can't give you a metaphor. And then the last one is, what is the best piece of writing advice anyone ever gave you? So I'm, uh, tomorrow I pump out newsletter 66. So from that, from that body of work, I, I selected 55 of these interviews. My brother, Jeff, who's my copy editor, had been saying for months, Chip, you should be doing, you should be putting this together as a collection. What is wrong with you? And I'd say, I'm tired, Jeff. And he said, you should do it. You should do it. And finally, I said, okay, I'll do it. And talk about serendipity. Right as I began the process, I got an email from a woman named Becky Blanton. And she asked me if I would coach her on a memoir she was ghostwriting. She's published, self-published hundreds of books since 2009. And... I don't know where the idea of self-publishing came. It may have just came when Becky entered my life, but I said, yeah, sure. I'll coach your writing and you coach my self-publishing. And so, so we bartered. So then, then, um, you know, we assembled the book or I assembled the book and add, you know, so I have 55 interviews and four questions and 111 journal writing prompts. And, um, you know, because I'd already assembled the material, I started October 18th assembling this and it was published December 10th. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty quick, huh? <laughs> well, a lot quicker than I had with traditional publishers of my textbook and a novel, which were unhappy experiences because of marketing and promotion, dismal marketing and promotion. Yeah, I do want to go back to some of the questions uh, or the the four questions that you listed, and and also I feel like I need to not come clean, but say I was I'm one of the 55 uh, people included in the book, which I am uh, incredibly grateful for. But I will tell you the one question that the former journalist in me, I guess I'm still a journalist, had the most trouble with was <laughs> the metaphor. <laughs> so well, I, I I'm so glad you're in it. You know, I mean, um, I asked you to do the interview 
you know, long before I thought about this as a book. And, you know, there was no no doubt in my mind that I was going to use your interview, your 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 concept of revision, the sculpting, the lesson you learned from Gene Weingarten about basically putting your notes away. It was terrific advice and wisdom. And um, I'm so glad you're in the book. Oh, I am, too. And uh, the book is is really amazing. I, I've been looking through, too, and seeing that I, I think I counted properly. We've got nine people. Uh, who have been on Gangry the podcast, who are also in the book, which is kind of exciting to see. Really, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll mention some of them a little bit later. Uh, but okay. Uh, uh, in terms of um the questions, I, I'm really curious. Like, how did you come up with those questions? That that's what you wanted to ask writers uh, for your newsletter, and then obviously it made its way to the book. I have to give a lot of credit to my former mentor the late Donald Murray, who was, I think, America's first newspaper writing coach at the Boston Globe uh, in the late 70s. And he became our writing coach at the Providence Journal, where I worked for eight years from 1977 to 1985. And I wrote him a fan letter. And that basically developed into a 10-year best friendship and mentorship. And he basically taught me the questions. Not the metaphor questions, but he would say, you know, I'd say, well, I was running a summer program for college graduates at Pointer. And I said, you know, geez, what, what do I do today? He said, well, just ask him these questions, <laughs> you know, ask. And he'd say, you know, what'd you learn? What surprised you? What do you, what do you need to learn next? And so I have incorporated that into my coaching and teaching and you know, I, I've got to give a plug to Don. His books on writing are are terrific, and if if you want to if you want to improve your writing, if you want to improve your coaching, if you want to improve your editing, he's the writer to go to. And I, I miss the man every day. We spoke sometimes five times a day. The uh, w when the answers come in from all these different writers, um, I for I guess for what's it been like for you? to reach out to writers and have them answer these questions. What's, what's that been like for you as a writer and an editor? Well, you know, I've been very fortunate that I worked at the Pointer Institute for 15 years because I made a lot of contacts. And, you know, some of the people in the book are people I have met and know, but a lot of them were just cold calls. I would ask for many email interview about your writing life. And they responded. I think part of it was that they, they weren't overwhelmed by it. And then I got, you know, I got emails. You know, I got Susan Orlean's email. And as a matter of fact, I had eaten dinner at a Chinese restaurant with her and Ann Fadiman, who's also in the book, an essayist, in Boston at a National Writers' Workshop when I was a director of the National Writers' Workshops for Pointer. So, you know, you meet people and, you know, I would email her and say, you know, you probably don't remember, but I've never forgotten this. And she wrote back and said, yeah, I'd be glad to do it. She sent me a fabulous picture. Um, we couldn't put the pictures in the book. I asked all of you to send pictures <laughs> and there's no pictures in the book because it's too expensive. But I'm going to put them on the uh, I'm going to put them on the website under a button, the writers, so uh, people can see who, who they are. So people responded. And, and I never touched the interviews. My model for 
for interviewing writers is the Paris Review model, which is usually an exchange between a writer and an editor. But in the end, the writer has the final say. And these interviews came in so clean, I barely had to copy it. <laughs> you know, the generosity, the generosity behind this book is phenomenal. You know, the generosity of 55 people. I mean, I have four Irish writers in there who I have never met and came my way because I tweeted a, an Irish short story writer whose work I found on Twitter and really liked. And it would bounce from, it was like ping pong. People would give me contacts. And I started asking, who else should I interview? So my hope is that, my hope is that I'll be able to produce a second collection of 55 new writers. You, you include, uh, you, it's not just journalists in, in this book. And I think that's really important, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, my primary context as a journalist for 22 years and working at Point or a school for journalists are journalists. But I did want, I did want other voices. So I have fiction writers. I have poets, including Patricia Smith, who's a Pulitzer finalist and who's, whose stuff is just so innovative and penetrating. And her husband, Bruce Da Silva, who I worked with at the Providence Journal, and he's a successful mystery writer, you know, an Edgar Award winner. And also Becky Blanton, who I interviewed before we ever got together to work together. I just thought, here's a woman who's self-published hundreds of books. She was kind enough, actually. I had neck surgery a few years ago. And we had met, you know how you meet on the internet, you just brush past people. And if you're lucky, you stop. And I stopped and she stopped and she wrote a guest post for me for my newsletter when I was kind of incapable of writing. So, you know, and now as I, I, I call her my Sherpa through this, through, through self, self-publishing and you really need a guide. I mean, it's a trip, but it's really a very complicated one. Was there, um, you know, between the differences and, and, and the writers who write different genres or whatever we want to call it, right? Uh, between uh, journalism and, and fiction and poetry, were you surprised by any similarities or differences in the types of answers that they gave? You know, Matt, no. They said the same things. It gets harder as you go along, which is what Dan Barry said. Uh, Madeline Darcy, who's a fiction writer in Cork City, I believe, you know, I love what she said. I have low expectations. And no, um, there were really kind of three themes. You know, one is it gets harder. The other is humility in the face of the process. And then the other is that all of them have accrued this writing advice which, you know, is embedded in their souls. So I did not find a difference between them. Writers are writers. Like I tell people I coach, a writer is one who writes, period. You don't have to be published. You just have to write. That makes you a writer. Who? Someone mentioned that. Was that or maybe this was you in your introduction, right? Uh, going a long time without saying I'm a writer until you realize, hey, guess what? <laughs> I'm a writer. Actually... It was Roy Peter Clark. Right, right, right. Who went, who went, you know, went for years thinking I'm not a writer, even though he had hundreds of articles in the Safety Times. And, and then finally he realized I'm an author. He had a funny line, you know, when you, when, when you auth, 
you're an author. You know, a lot a lot of these interviews are not just instructive and inspiring. They're, they're I think they're very entertaining. And and you know, I think the four question format really works well because it encapsulates the wisdom and the advice these writers have. And you don't have to go on forever. It's like uh, the Halloween, you don't get the full candy bar. You don't get the full Snickers. You get the little ones. I love Snickers. I bring up Snickers. So, and I always want the big one, but you get the little one. And in a way, that's what these are. They're just sweet little conversations, brief conversations about the writing life. There's um, one thing that comes up repeatedly, um, especially amongst the narrative journalists or the journalists in general, and that is the massive importance of reporting. Like you're you're not writing until you've reported, and the more you've reported, the more you can write. Um, you know, I I think uh, Jackie Banashinsky mentioned that. Um, John Woodrow Cox mentioned that. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember all the people who mentioned it, but a lot of people mentioned it and it's so true. And it's one thing that I'm constantly trying to get across to my students, right. Uh, in, in mm-hmm. journalism classes, were you, uh, just what were your thoughts uh, on seeing that come back as often as it did? Well, you know, as a narrative writer for eight years in Providence and then three years at the St. Pete times, now the Tampa Bay times. And then occasionally when I worked at the Night Rooter Newspapers Washington Bureau, you know, when Jackie said, good writing comes from good reporting, great writing comes from great reporting. And that resonated with me. And I think, you know, Jackie encapsulated it for so, you know, so many of the narrative writers in there. They dig deep. I mean, John Woodrow Cox is phenomenal. I did a Neiman storyboard annotation with him about this horrible story about this little girl who was shot by her seven-year-old friend. He spent months basically sitting on a couch in an apartment. And these children were estranged. So he was there the moment that Miana, well, T, who shot her, said, can I stay? And Miana says, stay. And John said, it was the greatest moment in his journalism career. And, you know, it's like what David Finkel always said, you got to hang around. And that's what the narrative journalists do. They just hang around until hang around through the boredom and the fatigue and just wait until they're like, you know, they're like gold miners and they're just sifting through rocks until suddenly gold appears. Uh, John, we mentioned uh, John uh, Cox uh, is someone who has been on this podcast twice. Uh, other people include Lane DeGregory, John Branch, Kim Cross, who's also been on it twice, Kelly Benham French, Ben Montgomery, who uh, might be losing track of how many times he's been on it. And he's also uh, created the website that generated the namesake for the podcast, um, Bronwyn Dickey. Um, and there are others too. I started to lose track. Um, but one thing I, I'm struck by is that it seems like within the writing community, like we love to come together in various ways to help each other, which is what people are doing when they come on my show. And it's what they're doing when they're answering your four questions. And uh, it's just, it's, it's amazing to me. 
Uh, and I'm assuming it is to you as well. It is, it is amazing to me. I mean, there's no reason they have to answer these four questions. You know, there's no reason for them to say, yeah, you can put it in a book. But you're right. The generosity of writers, you know, they talk about the, the sniping among writers. And, you know, Glenn Stout's interview, basically, the message I took from that was, and Brendan O'Meara's was, comparison is the thief of joy, right? And so these writers, they're not, they're not competing with each other. They're just, by answering these questions, they're just opening up their minds and their hearts. There's so much generosity involved in this book. I mean, you know, my close friend, Casey Frechette, who directs the journalism program at the University of South Florida, St. Pete. He and I worked at Pointer together. He created my website. Roy was good enough to write the foreword. I couldn't have done this without the generosity of writers to another writer. But it's not just to another writer, because I would tell them, this is for a writing advice newsletter. So the message was, this is not just for me. This is for the people who read my blog and my newsletter. I want to share what you know and what you believe with them. And I don't know, but I, I think they responded to that. We're going to take a short break. When we return, Scanlon will talk about the publishing process of his book, Writers on Writing, Inside the Lives of 55 Distinguished Writers and Editors. We'll be back in one minute. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the digital journalism and sports media programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm here with Chip Scanlon, the author of Writers on Writing, Inside the Lives of 55 Distinguished Writers and Editors. You have, you've been teaching writing for quite a while now. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to guess how many years, but you can say if you want to. But uh, what, what, what's changed uh, over that time frame? Well, I started teaching writing when I joined the faculty of the Pointer Institute in 1994. When I left in 2009, what changed was the newspaper industry. I used to get sometimes 60 applicants for a 16-person seminar. And a newspaper had to pay a thousand bucks tuition and pay airfare and hotel for a week. And more importantly, give up a staffer for a week. And they were willing to do it. And by the end, I was in the position of being told, you have to write grants to get money for these. And my feeling was, I'm a writing teacher. I'm not a grant writer. So I left, I did a year visiting professorship at Columbia, which 
journalism school where I went. And then basically, I, I guess you could call my coaching writing teaching. So I've been, I've been teaching, I've been teaching writers since 1994. So I'm not good at math, but I think it's a long time. <laughs> yeah. I, in 2006, came to Pointer uh, for the narrative on deadline uh, that Tom French uh, did, who, of course, is in the book. <laughs> um, yes, and that's right. where I met Ben Montgomery and Kelly Benham French and uh, Lane DeGregory, <laughs> which is kind of uh, pretty fantastic. Uh, I was a reporter at the Columbus Dispatch at the time, though, so 2007. And I think I was the last person that the dispatch ever sent to something like that. Yeah. And that, that to me is such a tragedy, you know, um, you know, most of pointer stuff is virtual. Now they try really hard and they get grants. To me, the biggest change was not the teaching of writing. It was the availability of students. You, you spoke about uh, this a little bit earlier, right, right at the start, but you chose to self-publish this book. Um, this is the first time you're doing that. Why, why did you go that route? I published two textbooks and a novel. And I may have said this earlier, but the first textbook, when I, right when it was published, Hardcore Brace published it, it was, it went out of business. I made lemonade out of lemons by writing a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Engine called little orphan author. And then it got picked up by Oxford University Press. Well, first of all, so when you don't have a publisher, you don't have any promotion. So then I'm picked up by Oxford University Press. And I worked with a great editor, but I had worked with an editor for several years before that. And she had a concept and I bought into it. And um, it was a smaller book. And literally, Matt, at the five-yard line, she calls and said, I've taken a new job. So I get a new editor who was wonderful. I mean, he was a lovely man, and, you know, I loved working with him. But the first thing he said was, Chip, the book's too short. Have you got anything else? I said, yeah, I have all this stuff in the first edition. Well, let me have it. And so there was that disappointment. And then I just didn't understand why it wasn't selling more. I could say... It's, it's a lousy book, but I've had enough people tell me it's a terrific book. And so I'm not sure which to believe. I believe in the book. I spent thousands of hours on it and I think it's good. But when it came time to do this collection, you know, as I said, my brother was urging me relentlessly to do this. To be honest, I think it was when Becky got in touch with me and the idea of self-publishing came into my mind. And I thought, you know, I've gone through this hell, maybe overstating it, but purgatory with traditional publishing. And I'm tired of it. I'm a lot older and I want control. I wanted control. I wanted to control the promotion. I wanted to control the book. I didn't want some editor to tell me, you know, this is good, but I think you need to get more interviews. You really need to ask them more questions. You know, you don't have enough back material after it. I felt it was a good, solid manuscript. So I decided to go the self-publishing route. And thankfully, I had Becky Blanton to guide me. And uh, it's not this, uh, at least this this myth that I think is probably put forward by publishers themselves, that self-published books aren't any good. And that's why they have to be self-published. Well, yeah, I mean attitudes have changed 
it used to be called vanity publishing. And it was reserved for losers who couldn't get a traditional publisher. But in 2007, Amazon came out with Kindle Direct Publishing and gave not just authors, but publishers the ability to digitally produce their work. In amazing speed, when someone orders my book, they don't have my books in stock. When someone orders my book, they do something called the gang printing of a bunch of other books, and they churn it out. My brother got his in a day. You know, it wasn't in stock. So I think that that played a big part in the acceptance of self-publishing. Examples like uh, E.L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey, which she self-published until Vintage, an imprint of Random House, picked it up. She sold 60, 65 million copies worldwide. Now, granted, a lot of the books suck, you know, and a lot of them aren't published because aren't traditionally published because they would probably be rejected or have already been rejected. And a lot of them have typos and misspellings. They, they lack professional skills, but I've read a lot of self-published books that I think are, are really good. Becky's last book, it's called the journey to midnight. And it's the story of a cop and a seal who basically the beginning of the book, he's about to swallow his result, swallow his revolver. And it basically takes him from that moment to he gets out of the dark into the light. And it is an Amazon number one bestseller. Cops love it. I think people concerned about suicide are very interested in it. Would it have been as successful with a traditional publisher? I don't know. I'm not embarrassed I self-published it. I'm frankly, I'm proud. And I bought into this. We have another one coming up. It'll probably be out Monday. It's called Writers on Writing the Journal, where we print the writing prompts, 111 writing prompts, 55 inspirational quotes, and 55 coaching tips with blank chapters after each writer's chapter for people to journal. When that's done, I'm going to do another one. My newsletter every week has craft lessons. And out of 66 of them, I think I can find at least 25 or 30 that are really solid. I've had a publisher kind of aggressively come after me saying, you know, come with me, you know, these are amateurs. And I mean, by that time, I was in for a dime, in for a dollar. And I work with a, an 85-year-old self-published novelist named Ray Hoy, who um, lives in the woods of Alaska, where it's typically minus 45 degrees now. <laughs> And, and for $200, he turns my manuscript into what looks like a book. It doesn't look, what do you think? Does it look it, like a... It looks fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he's brilliant. And he, he charges $199 to format the ebook and the paperback. Becky, Becky designed the covers. And I, I, I love the cover. I think it just pops. You know, I love the courier font of writers on writing. It says four questions, 55 writers, hundreds of writing insights, and 111 journal writing prompts. And I, I got a message from one of these Irish writers who's going to do an interview. And he said, that's super. When I was at Esquire, when we did numbers covers, they always sold. I don't know why. I don't know why. But people, you know, oh, wow, there's 55, hundreds, <laughs> 111. They seem to be, you know, really excited by that.
And, you know, so Ray Hoy's doing the formatting. Becky did. The, oh, this is interesting. So Becky did the covers, right? She's done the covers for the uh, the Writers on Writing, which uses a typewriter. And the journal has a fountain pen on it. And she sends it just to do like a finishing touch to an Armenian graphic designer. And every time she gets in touch with me, he says, well, I'm cutting wood right now. I'll get to it in a minute. And we've decided that must be code for something. We're not sure what it is, but <laughs> you can't be cutting that much wood. And this is the great thing. Um, you know, there's so many bad things about the way <laughs> that the, what the internet has done to the world. But this is one of those great things where we can get in touch with people who we've never met, who can, who, who can help us uh, turn out uh, some amazing uh, projects. And I know you wrote a piece explaining uh, the, the, the self-publishing process, and I'll make sure to link that on the website uh, once, I go, once this goes live. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't say something about the fact that you are a Fairfield University graduate, class of 1971. I believe this is true. 1971, that, 67 and 1971. That, that makes you the first person on this show who is an alum of the university where I work. And of course, uh, because I love to dig into newspaper archives. <laughs> once I realized that you were an alum, I went straight into the, uh, the, the student newspaper archives. And I found a lot of student newspaper stories with your name in them, but it wasn't the, as, as a byline. Right. You were in these stories because they were about theater on campus uh, when you were a student. Uh, I thought I'd find a bunch of bylines, but I'm, I'm curious, when when did you make that switch? When did you realize that that you wanted to write? Oh, in kindergarten, my mother, who was a devout Catholic, told me one day. Chipper which is what she called me, which is what my grandchildren call me now. If you say nine Hail Marys on Tuesday to the Blessed Virgin Mary, she will grant you a wish. She will give you something you want. So what would you like? I mean, it was really, it was really, uh, it was really a con job. <laughs> uh, and you know what I said? I want a mechanical pencil. My favorite, even in kindergarten, my school was right across the street from W.T. Grant and Woolworths. They were both department stores. And my favorite section was the stationary section. And by the age of 12, I was sneak reading novels under my bed at night. Novels that my older brother had, a fictionalized biography of the sculptor Rodin, Young Blood Hawk by Herman Woke, which is uh, basically the story of fictionalized story of Thomas Wolfe. And at that time, I would read these things, and my reaction was, these guys are geniuses. I mean, 800 pages, there are no mistakes. I can't stop reading them. This is what I want to do. I want to write things that keep people up late reading. So I continued to write short stories when I was in college, but I also was um, a really active participant in the college theater group. I mean, I basically send, I, I would spend 80 to 90 hours there. And I, I did a lot of shows. And what was interesting, one of the things that you sent me said, Scanlon, who is choosing writing over acting. And I thought, how did they know that? Because <laughs> senior year, and this is funny, senior year, I said to a friend, 
because I had terrible stage fright until I got on stage, then I was fine, which is, I think, true for a lot of actors. And, um, but I said, I can't stand the stage fright. I'm going to pick writing because it'll be less stressful. <laughs> and then I became a journalist and I was introduced to stress to 11. So, yeah, it began when I was a child, it continued through my adolescence. Through my youth, I went into Peace Corps after college and wrote short stories there, um, kept a journal. You know, when this is over, I, I've been working on a memoir about that time. I was not a heroic Peace Corps volunteer. I was a callow, hapless Peace Corps teacher of English as a foreign language in a village where the villagers were not friendly. The French former French colonialists were not friendly. And the closest American was 200 kilometers away. And it was the loneliest experience I've ever had in my life. And I think there's a book in it. I just don't know how to tell it yet. So that's the challenge. So when these, now I have to be honest, if I write a memoir that I think is really great, I'm probably going to try to get it published by a traditional publisher. And it's not a diss on self-publishing, but I would like a book that I think is from my soul. And if it's really, if I think it's really well written, I would go to agents and say, would you look at a chapter? And if they say, yeah, and they get a publisher, I would be thrilled. Now, <laughs> I just hope I don't get screwed by the promotion department again. <laughs> but, you know, one of the downsides of self-publishing is you're never going to get reviewed in a, news in a newspaper unless you're famous. And booksellers are probably not going to pick it up. Although, and this is where Becky knows so much, when you go on the Amazon site, you, are, you can pick royalties. I could have picked a 60% royalty rate for this book. But Becky said, look, take 40% and select something called expanded distribution. And what that means is Amazon will distribute it around the world and to booksellers and libraries, who, if they want, will buy it. So reach means more to me than royalties. I didn't do this for the money. My newsletter is free. My newsletter is free, like most newsletters. I, I, you know, I'm not in it for the money. Um, not to say I don't want money. Uh, and not to say I wouldn't like everyone listening to this podcast <laughs> to buy my book, uh, which is, I know, what authors are supposed to say, but... Chip, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about Writers on Writing, Inside the Lives of 55 Distinguished Writers and Editors. It's a fantastic book, and I think everyone who listens to this podcast uh, should definitely be picking it up for sure. Hey, Matt, I really appreciate that, and I, I do really appreciate you inviting me on your podcast. It's an honor. That was Chip Scanlon. His new book, Writers on Writing, Inside the Lives of 55 Distinguished Writers and Editors is available now. You can find a link to the book on the website, gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. 
just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangry the podcast is produced in the integrated media labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.